Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WAB in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Brightsis. Thank you for listening. With the lighting of the first candle this evening begins the Jewish Festival of Lights, Hanukkah. The eight-day holiday marks the rededication of the Second Temple in Jerusalem and a miracle in ancient times that's observed today with nightly menorah lighting along with special prayers, games, songs, and traditional foods. Chef Alon Valjean will tell us about those special foods later this hour. First, a musical holiday treat. From the moment we hear the first notes to a jazzy rendition of Jolly Old St. Nicholas and the words Alliance Theatre Anywhere appear on screen, a very Terry Christmas brings delight. This production was to have been the first live performance at the Alliance Theatre in November, but the pandemic had other ideas. So director Susan Booth came up with a clever adaptation for film, one that celebrates our city. I spoke with actor and singer Terry Burrell about pivoting from stage to this screen version. We had actually planned to do a more cabaret-style staged version of it, and the story was going to be different. And then we, we started having these Zoom production meetings and somewhere in there, I think it was Susan that came up with it, the idea of going around to these venues all around Atlanta came up. And she asked me, given the choice of the two, which one would you want to do? I said, definitely the venues. Nobody's doing anything like that. And it's a reminder of how wonderful this city is and what it has to offer. Of course, that meant logistically, it was almost a nightmare because, you know, you had to ask permission. There were many times when we could not film uh, earlier in the day because these venues are still open. 
So we had to wait, say, for instance, when we went to the Fernback Museum, we could shoot in the Starfield because there was nobody in there, but there were people that were in the museum. So we had to wait till the end of the day to closing time to now shoot. So that made for a very long day. Same thing with the zoo, although we had a little bit more flexibility there. And a couple of other places, uh, the aquarium, we had to wait until the end of the day because there were people still in the aquarium. Well, indeed, you not only acknowledge the pandemic, but you bring it right into the plot. And would you talk about how you address the importance of safety in this musical? It was very strict. We had to go with a SAG after contract because at the at that time we could not get Actors Equity to approve anything. And every 72 hours, and they had uh, two people there to do it, we had to have be tested for COVID. Every 72 hours, myself and the crew, because there was really no way that we could safely socially distance. And of course, everybody had to wear a mask, including myself, except the times when I would take it off because I had to sing. So it was very strict. I felt very safe. When you're getting tested every 72 hours, believe me, if somebody's got a problem, it's going to show up very quickly. (laughs) But, you know, just even making light of the fact that you must keep a safe social distance and, and you wear masks, your masks are hilarious. They are hilarious. There is a moment when I'm in the car talking to my bot, Elaine, and I'm looking for my masks. And I pull out all of these funny masks, Black Panther mask, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street mask, some other funny mask, and, and holding it up, you know, you had to hold it up to the camera like you were. You know, it's very funny. I'm looking for a particular mask because we're on our way to the botanical gardens. And it turns out that the mask is a piece of cabbage, which I eat. (laughs) (laughs) And I tell you something, I really did eat it and it was good. (laughs) Oh, good. I hope it had been seasoned a little bit. But let's talk about the site. So the premise of the show is you are visiting these highlights of our city, these wonderful landmarks for visitors and residents, and you manage to find an appropriate song for each venue. Terry, which came first, the songs or the venue? Uh, The venues came first, just a list. And at that point, there were just possibilities because the managers of these sites had not been approached yet. The idea was to get at least nine of them. But I think there might have been a list. The list was a little longer. And so I looked at the venues and I thought of the songs, although Susan contributed some of the songs, the ideas for the songs herself. What I wanted to introduce was some African and some Caribbean in there. And so we were able to do that. But when you think about it, there's so many other cultural elements. If you listen to the holly and the ivy, it sounds very Irish. So very Celtic almost in its musical treatment. That was great. And then we were able to do um, Little Drummer Boy. I found a, a sort of African beat for that. And so we were able to do it that way, which was wonderful. It was different. And a young boy 
who plays the drum. What can you tell us about him and that whole number? Well, his name is Philip. He's 11 years old, but he was just the sweetest thing. I mean, it was so lovely. And, you know, he, um, he was a little nervous, you know, so we practiced a few times and I said, listen, whatever I do, you do. And so I shook my head in a funny way and he did, and he smiled, you know, I mean, he, it, it was just delightful. His parents were there. They were so excited for him. You know, it was just wonderful. He very, very sweet young man. So you performed that song, The Little Drummer Boy, at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Yes, we did, which was very apropos. And they actually shut down for the day so that we could film, we could film in there. It was yeah, very special. The first place you visit is the Atlanta Zoo. Yes. Tell us <laughs> about the fun way you begin with that song. Well, you know, I'm like this little diva. So everywhere I go, because I use the magic of theater to transport me from place to place. And I, my set appears with me wherever I go, you know, which is the chair, my martini goblet, which a friend of mine told me they have one of also, um, you know, my Christmas tree. So I go there because I really want to see this hippopotamus. And I sing, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. And I'm looking for the hippopotamus and I can't see the hippopotamus. And okay, I march around to the other side because I just know that hippopotamus is here. And I'm looking and then I start to break down as I get closer and closer to the end of the song. And then finally I'm like flat out upset that he is not there and I've sung so beautifully for him. And why wouldn't he show up for my song? And then you hear someone say, Oh, Terry, and you see that hand point and you see that there's a plaque that says it's the rhinoceros enclosure. So, you know, she's, she's a diva, but she's a little, you know, dense sometimes. Oh, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, they end in S, they're great big animals. I don't want to provide spoilers, but I will say that the snow globe was one of the more brilliant touches. It really was. You know, in these production meetings, we were discussing how are we going to get a piano, an upright bass, and a set of drums to each venue? It, it was just, 
it would have been a logistical nightmare. And so somebody, again, I, I don't remember who, somebody came up with the idea of, can we do something like uh, shrink them magically? <laughs> and that's what we did. I, you know, my, my I'm, I'm gonna take a car to the first venue, which is the zoo, and my musicians show up and they say, hey, great, look, look at your cards, can, can, can fit all of us. And I go, I don't think so. Am I the only one socially distancing in this story? No, 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 no. And Tyrone says, Tyrone Jackson, who I just adore, who was my MD for Ethel, he says, no car, no band. And I go, okay, okay, let me think. Right, well, you know what? It is the magic of theater. So stand back. I don't think this is gonna hurt. And then I do this little I dream of genie kind of movement and they are magically shrunk. And because it's film, you never film in sequence. So we literally shot that first scene on the last day of filming. So I shrink them and I pick them up and I go, now you can travel with me. And so when I go to like the zoo and I go to other places, I go, play a tiny band. <laughs> I was falling off my chair. I just loved it. And the funniest thing was that, of course, when I start shaking the globe, like I'm dancing with it in the aquarium, they had to stand in front of a green screen and follow my movements and pretend that they were being shaken up in there. It was, I was on the floor watching them. I can imagine you must have felt very powerful. Another highlight is your visit to the Center for Puppetry Arts. dreams to come true believe in your dreams come what may there's always tomorrow with so much to do and so When I found myself dancing with Stan, the lovesick snowman, it was like I really was dancing with a human being rather than a puppet. Those puppeteers are so gifted. Yes. Now, you mentioned Elaine. Can we talk about Elaine? Elaine is a butt. And Elaine sometimes relates to me in an unbutt-like way. Elaine, what are the hours for the varsity? The varsity is open Sunday through Thursday, 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. Friday and Saturday, 11 a.m. till 9 p.m. Oh, shoot. It's not 11 yet. They're not open. You're probably wondering how Terry got into the varsity if the restaurant is closed. Tell him, Elaine. That is the magic theater. <laughs> so there are a couple of moments when I get a little sarcastic and a little annoyed with you. <laughs> you know, at one point she says something and I go look at her and I say, uh, was that some shade, Elaine? What, were you just throwing me some shade? <laughs> you know, but Elaine goes everywhere that I go, you know, and makes it easy for me. She's hilarious. I must say that Part of what 
is so whimsical and and self-aware, if you will, is how unabashed you are about product placement and the Coca-Cola mask going into the varsity, the Coca-Cola stage, of course, at the Alliance Theater. I love how unabashed you are about acknowledging sponsors. And I think that that's very important. I mean, they went out of their way to make things easy for us. And it could not always have been easy for them, but give credit where credit is due. I mean, I will tell you that the first time I ever stepped onto that Coca-Cola stage, I was home. It is just so stunningly beautiful and almost feminine in its design. Uh, The acoustics are just perfect. That warm, beautiful wood and the way that it's shaped is just, it, 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 it's, it's just warm in its feel. And I did not miss the old space. Of course, I was used to the old space, but I didn't miss it once I stepped onto the Coca-Cola stage. Broadway actress and Atlanta treasure, Terry Burrell. We'll be back with more of our conversation about a very Terry Christmas after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Broadway actor and Atlanta treasure Terry Burrell. She's starring in A Very Terry Christmas, streaming on Alliance Theatre anywhere. Here... We're talking about her musical number, Cheeseburger in Paradise, filmed at the Varsity. You know, that's a Jimmy Buffett song. And, and I have a different song in mind, actually, for there. And it was the, um, the woman who owns the Varsity who asked if we could do that, Cheeseburger in Paradise.
I said to Susan, hey, you know what? If she's kind enough to let us use the space, because we have to be in there and we're really in the way of the workers because they have to obviously be there hours ahead of time to be ready to open at 11 o'clock. And we're, we're there at like at nine in the morning, you know, getting in the way. Um, I said, hey, her wish is my command. I'm glad to do the song. And she said, and I want your sisters in it. So, so my sisters are the ones who are singing backup. Your actual sisters? My actual <gasps> sisters. I didn't, yeah. I wondered who they were. It's such a fun, you know, kind of 60s throwback, Supremes number. I mean, you're even doing something that feels like go-go dancing. Well, and it was Susan Booth who choreographed it. Can you imagine that? She choreographed that and she choreographed the dance moves that we do in the aquarium. She was actually standing there in front of me, like, show, you know, reminding me of what <laughs> moves work. It is just hilarious. But she, um, yeah, she came up with the dance steps. Oh my goodness. I mean, I remember doing the monkey when I was 12 and there you were a la 60s with, with your actual sisters. We had actually done something like that when I was doing the virtual cabaret in the summer for the Alliance. And I said, hey, I want to do something with my sisters. So we did that old song, uh, Tonight You Belong to Me. And so we did that. And my, the guy was playing piano for us, Christian Magby, actually put the video together. And they just fell in love with it. So when it was time to do this, Susan said, I want to do that again. And this time I want to, I just want these bobbing heads to kind of go around. <laughs> so my sisters sat there, God bless them. And they had to sit there because they had to videotape themselves. Listening to the whole verse before they could come in with the backup. <laughs> so this Christmas, they get very good presents from me. <laughs> I, well, I think this, this show is enough of a present. There's a fabulous arrangement you sing of the Grinch. Just, it's so bluesy. You have certainly shown your true colors, Mr. Osaurus. I have this one thing to say to you. that you made the dinosaur Irish. Yeah, that's Susan. Susan wrote the script. I might have suggested a thing or two, but she wrote that entire script. She's very clever and very funny. I, well, we knew she was brilliant. I, I think the humor and the wit comes through, especially here. Absolutely. And she said to me, I don't even know where that came from, Mr. Osaurus. <laughs> I usually find the Irish much more pleasant <laughs> to deal with, Mr. Osaurus. I had a deja vu to Little Shop of Horrors with All I Want for Christmas. It's pretty darn hilarious. Isn't it? 
It is. And especially the way I appear in that dentist chair. I end up in Dr. Richmond's office in his dentist chair and my two front teeth are missing. <laughs> and I sing, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. And then it gets jazzier and jazzier as we go along. And I use his water pick as a microphone. <laughs> and I do chair, chair choreography. Dr. Richmond is one of the subscribers uh, to the Alliance Theater. He was hilarious, just hilarious. And he and his wife, his wife works at the office too. I mean, they were having such a good time. And he was perfect, just perfect. And it was your idea to come up with that song? Uh, yes, I came up with the song, but it was Susan who wrote the scene and how it's all connected because, you know, I, like I said, we shot out of sequence. So that was shot like maybe, you know, three or four days before the scene that gets me in the dentist chair. It is really an ethereal touch, truly an ethereal touch. When you sing at First Church, Dr. Dwight Andrews Church, Yes. Do you attend that congregation? You know, I don't. And I had heard about their jazz vespers on Friday nights, but I had never attended. But now I will, you know. Um, and actually, Tyrone Jackson, who is who was our MD for the show, his wife works there. And she was actually texting me and saying, hey, Terry, I can see you through the window. Look up, come to the window and look across and wave. And I never saw the text. So, you know, been, it was amazing. Elaine a, should have told you. She should have, is right. Well, the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews is, is one of this city's treasures. He is, and I had the opportunity to meet him once, and he was so kind and so delightful. They were all very kind when we got there. And, I mean, and that, that's how it was with just about every, with, with every venue that we attended. The people, there were people there who stayed after, after hours just to make sure that we had everything that we needed, which was just incredible. Truly in the best spirit of this season. Talk about Lark. Oh my God, Lark is the treasure in all of this. Now I've known Lark, I knew Lark back when she was working in Queens, working theater in, in Queens, New York. That's how far back we go. And then she moved to Atlanta and I met her again when I started working at the Alliance Theater. She's been there, I don't, I, I, I can't even remember how many years she's been there, 15 or something, 16 years. And she was actually my stage manager when I did Ethel. And she was my stage manager when we did Angry Raucous. She's just been there. And so now she had lines to do. 
and I am a constant source of irritation to her. I don't read my email, so I don't know that the venues have changed. Not you, but your character. In- my character, yes. yes, my character. Thank you. My, let's, let's make that. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. And uh, there's a scene in the dentist's office when we're leaving, and she's, I, I again, just not paying attention to anything she has to say. And I go to the car, and I just stand there. I just stand there. I don't move. And she looks up and sees me standing and she gets out of the truck and she runs over and she yanks the door open for me. And I get in like the diva I'm playing and she slams it on. She slams it on. She peels up. I mean, it is just hilarious. Yes. And and so not you in real life. No, absolutely not. <laughs> well, I have to say during this exceptionally dark time of the year and in history you provide a whole lot of light and joy through this production terry burrell thank you so very much once again lois it is always always a pleasure thank you and merry christmas to you thank you actor and singer terry burrell the alliance theaters A Very Terry Christmas is streaming through December 31st. More information about how to watch will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Oliver Jeffers is a brilliant creator of children's picture books with many awards to his credit. We last spoke in 2017 after the release of Here We Are, written as a gift to his son. Now, Jeffers has another child and a new book called What We'll Build. He is with us via Zoom. Oliver Jeffers, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you very much, Lois. It's good to be back, sort of. Yes, virtually indeed. How rare that a newborn would receive such a gift as these storybooks. Before Here We Are was published, I believe you had written 14 books and collaborated on four more. How does being a parent inform your work? Uh, well, the, uh, that sounds about right. I've never actually counted them all up. Being a parent, I knew that I was making Here We Are before I told really the general public that it was happening. And after our son was born, it was a question that was quite common, which is, is this going to change the way in which you make books? And the answer was quite obviously yes, but not in the obvious way that people expected. And that's because the book that, that followed Here We Are was my first ever nonfiction book. Uh, it was not a story at all. And with what we'll build, it's my second non-sort of straightforward narrative book. It's it's a poem, really. It's it's not a story. So quite directly, the answer is that having these these kids is, has massively changed the way in which I've made books. But that doesn't mean to say the rest of my books are going to be abstract or non-fiction. Uh, and and I dare say that now that I'm reading more books than I have, more picture books than I have ever before, because I'm reading them to them, there will be 
an impact on the type of story that I might tell in the future. But I, it's too early to say, because ever since they've both been born, I've been working on, on these books for them. Your first book was How to Catch a Star. And Here We Are is about living on Earth from another perspective, the sweet guide to life and the cosmos for your son. Now you have a baby daughter. Congratulations. How old is she? She is now two and a half. Oh, she's not a baby anymore. She's a big girl. Uh, as, as she likes to say. <laughs> yes. Has she told you yet that big girls don't take naps? Uh, not in so many words, but she says big girls go to school because her brother started going to school, so she wants to go too. Oh, yes. It's all quite a different landscape for them now. Well, what hopes do you express for your daughter in what we'll build? Well, the hopes that I express for my daughter in what we'll build are, well, they're, they're, they're abstract hopes. They're uh, non-specific ones that aren't, aren't practical or realistic. We're not actually going to build a road up to the moon or we're not going to build a, a ship from scratch either. But it's so much of it is we'll build some love to set aside. Things like that are, are, are real, but also vague enough that they can be made specific by anybody who's who's reading this book. And and while, yes, the prominent characters in this book are me and my daughter, really this book is for and about the loving relationship between any two people and how you navigate an unknown future. Like, for example, it's, it's much more fun to go out for dinner with someone or to tell someone a joke so you see their reaction because it's a shared experience. And I, for one, always like to verbalize my plans, even if that's just so that somebody else hears them. And, and a big part of this book is that. But really, I think at the start of the book, it, it talks about how it's you're only free to dream and plan for a future when you're not battling to survive a present and, and sort of taking stock and realizing just how uneven the playing field is. And that I hope my daughter, both of my children and myself uh, uh, go some way in, into trying to help even the field. And one thing that I've been contemplating was like that this book, the art for this book was being made in, at, the, at the beginning of that momentum of the Me Too movement and just thinking about raising a daughter in what will hopefully soon no longer be a man's world and just the, the amount of work that needs to be done for that and to, for, for everything, for the entire field to be evened in, in myriad ways. Yes, immediately you tackled gender norms in the book at the outset, which you talk about how your awareness of having a daughter, what it's like to be a little girl in this world. I don't know if I can answer that just yet because we're still sort of realizing that she's not a carbon copy of our son, that they're their own little different people. So even even that is not about gender recognition so much as two different people recognitions that they that my daughter likes to do things in a different way from my son and that might be nothing to do with gender that might be just to do with first child second child so there's we're figuring out so 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 much but i'm sure as she gets older and and uh, the the world is thrust upon her there's going to be all sorts of lessons that that we and she needs to learn and and things that that we can help other people learn so we're at the, the very beginning of what we hope is a is a long but steady path. But early on, the first pages of the book, the illustrations are of tools. 
while certainly we know women are gifted as architects, there are many builders, contractors. I think you were saying something at the outset about everything being open to her, to girls. Yeah, and I, I, you know what? Initially, that actually came quite subconsciously. As soon as it was there prevalent in the book, it was like, yes, that is what this is doing. But the the reason that there is the tool and toolbox in there is that we were moving apartments when she was only about a year old or slightly less. And, and uh, I was coming up with the final touches on the, the poem that is in this book and the way in which it was going to look. And I have a red toolbox that looks like that. And every time I would open it, she would be over like a flash and pulling things out and just really intrigued by this, by all of these objects. And so it wasn't with with a conscious decision, I thought, I'm going to upset gender norms. It was just like, a, this is a book about her and her right now. And she just really loved these tools and that objects. And I think I probably thought, you know, that, that it's supposed to be boys love tools. And I just thought, well, why burden her with that without realizing kind of the, the possible gravity that it might have to a larger audience? Oh, I love the backstory to this story. That So it clearly is metaphor and poetic. When you ask, what shall we build, you and I? I'll build your future and you'll build mine. I know that no one could have anticipated when you wrote either book that we would be facing a pandemic. How have you tried to explain to your children what life must be during COVID-19 to these very sweet young minds? My daughter doesn't really get it, the whole thing yet. It's just, we're lucky that she enjoys washing her hands. She considers that as a treat rather than a punishment. But it is funny that, that you say about this book and, and the, the resonance that it has with, with COVID. And the, the truth is that we try to speak to them as directly and honestly as possible. We, we talk about the disease and why it's important to stay away from people and that we hope it goes away and, and that we have to be safe to keep people who are old or sick safe. Uh, and, and the things that we do have consequences. And, and our son gets it and he's, he's great about it. But I made this book well over a year ago, the final art was was finished July of last year, um, well before any of this started to come. And, and I hadn't really, we, we went traveling with our family and I hadn't really thought about it too much. And then of course, as the, the publication was approaching and I realized that it's a very, very different world. And part of me just thought that maybe this book will sort of fizzle in, into existence and, and then die away because it's, it's no longer relevant. It's about a totally different world. And what I didn't quite realize is just how apt it actually is uh, uh, about the right now, about the, the fact that not just new parents with new babies facing an unknown future, but everybody, every single person out there is, is facing a very uncertain future. And all we can do effectively at this point is plan and hope. Yeah. In the illustration where you show a fortress to keep our enemies out and but you don't always lose and you don't always win. This has special resonance now, although certainly not meant to frighten children. But once again, the book is beautifully illustrated and profoundly moving. 
I look forward to talking with you again, whether the next book is about, is another gift to (laughs) a a Jeffers child or... I don't know the energy to go through uh, all that, uh, the early stages of development again, but (laughs) there will be more books for sure. Author and illustrator Oliver Jeffers, his new children's book, What We'll Build is available now. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This evening marks the first night of Hanukkah, the Jewish Festival of Lights. In 2018, I spoke with Chef Alain Balsham, an Israeli native who is the creator and owner of Aland Bakery in Morningside and Dunwoody. I began by asking Alan how the American celebration of Hanukkah differs from the holiday observance in Israel. Well, all holidays in Israel are very different because everybody, literally everybody, celebrates it one way or another. Some are orthodox, some are not orthodox, but you feel it in the air. The stores are closing early. You know, the holidays in the street, you know, in, in, in the high holiday, Yom Kippur and all that, everything is shut down. Nobody drives, nobody, you know. So it's a totally different feeling. Every holiday here is very different that way. But Hanukkah in particular, I think, is different. And even in my lifetime, I've noticed a difference when I was growing up we lit candles, of yes. course, always. We had latkes and played with a dreidel. But a present would be a little box of crayons exactly. or something. Correct. You know, the Correct. little chocolate Hanukkah gelt, the coins. Now, Bloomingdale's has a Hanukkah shop. And, and Tiffany has this huge ad in the New York Times saying happy Hanukkah. And I want to say thank you because it's wonderful that American non-Jews want to be inclusive. But the holiday does not have the same significance as Christmas. It does not. And and it's interesting that you said it because I was going to say that American Jews celebrate different than Israelis. Because as a kid, you know, I got some chocolate guilt or... That was about it. It wasn't a big deal. And over here, I had a lot of people, non-Jewish, that would tell me, oh, I heard you guys get a new present every single night. And I'm like, no, No. I don't think so. (laughs) You know, that's not the way it was. But maybe some other people will, like we talk about, you know, simulation and all that. People want to, you know, other people get gifts for Christmas. So Jewish people want to match that and say, well, we're going to also have that. Or maybe we'll have more. I don't know. Just an assumption I'm making. It, it is a part of assimilation. But your father is Moroccan. Your mother was Egyptian. How did their backgrounds inform your approach to food? Um, in many ways. Um, well, the food at home was most, well, it was some Moroccan and some Egyptian. All the food in Israel kind of mix up, and in the end, you know, the Sephardic food rules, you know, it's the best food really compared to the, 
Sorry for all the Ashkenazis out there, but it's just better food, you know. (laughs) We should add, in terms of heritage, these are two subcultures of Jews. Those of European background are identified as Ashkenazic. Those of Spanish, Portuguese, North African, and Middle Eastern are Sephardic. And yes, you have better food. But please, continue. So that's it. So there was, you know, some Egyptian specialties that my mother would cook that I grew up on. What were they? Uh, there is one anywhere from, you know, hummus is probably Middle Eastern and more Egyptian than it is Moroccan, but it's national. It's like a pizza in America. Mm-hmm. That's what hummus is in Israel, you know. There is a very particular dish that is Egyptian people cook. It's called molochea. And it's like a green leaf that is cut with a mesaluna, you know, like a round knife. And it's sharp, very fine. And you make like a soup from Mm -hmm. chicken or beef and you mix it in. It's very thick and it's delicious. I grew up on it, you know. It's... uh, I'm very subjective about it. So once in a while, I'll go and make some of it. The spices, the strong spices in it are cumin and coriander. And, you know, in my time, my mother would, you know, smoke them a little bit and, you know, toast them. Yum. And then I would sit on the floor with a little mortar. Yes. And just grind them until they're fine. And that was uh, that was hard work. But it made it delicious, you know. How old were you when you started? Uh, I started when I was a little kid. Oh. Seven or eight, maybe. I don't know. So. I was always in the kitchen, so. Well, many of us are very Mm -hmm. grateful for that, Alan. In terms of the Hanukkah food tradition, the Eastern European, the European Jews, um, those of us with that descent had potato pancakes, latkes, Mm -hmm. and the Sephardic Jews had something very different. Tell us about the Hanukkah traditional foods. Well, there's a there's a couple there's a couple things that we do. So Moroccan, particularly, do a fried dough that is called sfinge, and it is uh, like a dough batter, like, and it's got yeast in it, and it proof, and then you pick it up with your hand, you kind of throw it in the oil. So it's just kind of a rough shape, but doesn't have eggs in it or anything. It's very simple. You know, Moroccan sweets are very usually very sweet and they don't really have much to them, but but it, it's, a, it's a it's delicious. It's very good. Sounds like a beignet. It is. It's a, it's a cousin, I mean, basically. Yeah. Beignet would have eggs and all that, but this is a little simpler, that's what I said. Okay. And then uh, and then most Israelis would have sufganiot, which is a donut or in Germany it would call a Berliner. Uh, oh, so that's where John F. Kennedy got in trouble mm-hmm. when he said, Ich bin ein Berliner. That meant I am a jelly donut because he should have said, Ich bin Berliner without ein. <laughs> I did not know that was the same thing. Uh, yeah. So what's essential is that whatever the food, it must be cooked in oil to commemorate the miracle of the oil. Correct, correct. So we fry a lot of things, yeah, during Hanukkah especially. Because the oil lasted for eight days. That's right. There was something in the New York Times, an opinion piece about Hanukkah, and I thought this was rather sad. (laughs) 
the man wrote, in terms of God's miracles, he thought that was a pretty lame one. And I thought, wait, what? (laughs) And then I got to thinking, "Eh, burning bush, Red Sea parting. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't call it lame, but Hanukkah is a festival. It's not a religious holiday observance. What I, li- I like, one of the things I like is that the, the light defeats the darkness, and I like the message of that. Yes, and, and it's common to all cultures. It is, yeah. It's beautiful. Alan, I had never heard of Borekas before you featured them. What are Borekas and what's their origin? So Borekas come from, I think, Turkey, but uh, on the entire Middle East, you know, everybody that's around us, they all make it one way or another. Um, So the the Greeks do the spanakopita. Mm. So that's a type of puff pastry. It's not exactly puff pastry, but it's done in a layered dough, which is similar. Turkish do the same thing. You know, so my mother do, uh, you know, also Borekas, Egyptian, pretty much the Middle East area. That, that's that's uh, who does it. So growing up, you know, there were stores that, you know, every every bakery always sold that. And uh, there was one particular store that used to make large Borekas, and they used to also boil eggs all night, and, you know, they turned really dark brown. And then they peel them, and you would get, in that particular store, you would get a hot. It has to be hot. Borekas cold is not good because the puff pastry become a little soggy. And you need to stay nice and crispy. So when you eat it, it kind of explodes. And that's what makes it delicious. And then they would serve that with hot chocolate and a hard-boiled egg with oh. the borekas. And if some people even open the borekas and take the egg and put it in. And that would be like a easy brunch, you know, on Saturday morning or... I'm in. So borekas are not distinct to Hanukkah? No. Okay. At Alon's Bakery, you offer the full array of treats from both traditions. So you don't discriminate against the Ashkenazim who only had those pathetic potatoes. Although I actually never met a potato I didn't like. One of the traditions that children delight in is playing dreidel, a little spinning top. And the letters on the dreidel in Israel are different from those elsewhere. Would you talk about all things dreidel? Sure. So, you know, as a kid, we had dreidels the same like here, you know, Um and, you know, our dreidels say that, you know, the miracle, the letters represented the miracle was here. Well, in America, the, dr- the miracle was there. That's what the letters signify yes. on the, around it. But we had a different kind of dreidel. It didn't have any lettering or anything. And we didn't call it dreidel. It was, well, we call it in Hebrew. It was sevivon, you know. And um, we used to tie. It was some kind of a cone with a metal corner. In, in the, it was a metal edge. And then we take a piece of rope and we tie it around the cone. And then with the hand swing, you kind of shoot it to the ground and then kind of spin really, really fast. And then you go with your hand and you pick it up and then you play against the other mates that have also dreaded like that and you kind of hit it with your hand. This is serious Oh, yeah, that was was like... This is extreme dreidel. This was extreme dreidel. 
and it was awesome. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was. It was not boring like the little dreidel. You know, it's just gonna play. Oh, it's all right. Oh, like, this I love was the fun. little dreidels. <laughs> I I was very good at flicking those things. Yeah. <laughs> but. But did you play that extreme dreidel at Hanukkah, or was that? We played, we played all year long, but at Hanukkah as well. I mean, it wasn't. It just it just a similar thing. They both turned the same right. way and all that. Oh, so, I love it. Alan Balsham, thank you very much for showing us how scrumptious and how unifying food can be. You're welcome. My pleasure. Chef Alan Balsham, owner of. Alon's Bakery in Morningside and Dunwoody. The first night of Hanukkah begins this evening at sunset. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be theater director Andre Gregory. His new book, This Is Not My Memoir reveals an extraordinary life in theater and beyond. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks so much for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.